Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Material Matters hosted by Grant Gibson. That's me. In each podcast, we're meeting a maker, designer or architect who is intrinsically linked to a particular material or technique, discovering how their crafts shape their lives and careers. For the next half hour or so, I'm delighted to be joined by one of the pioneers of the British studio glass movement, Peter Layton. Peter started his company, London Glassblowing, in 1976. And today, the studio on Bermondsey Street, where we're recording this, has 10 makers creating his designs, as well as a small but perfectly formed gallery and retail space. Thanks very much for doing this. You're welcome. Um, Can we start off by talking about your background? Because your first kind of introduction to materials wasn't glass, was it? I trained as a potter. But even before that? Well, even before that, Mm. yes. Okay, so... To go right back to the beginning. Let's go right back. Uh, my parents were refugees. Well, I was a refugee, in fact. I was two years old. Uh, we we escaped from the Nazis, uh, ostensibly. Legend has it that we won the last train out of Prague in August uh, 1939. Uh, so we arrived here. My parents didn't speak much English. I think they were butler and bottle washer and, and housemaid for the first few months. But luckily, my grandfather had established himself in Yorkshire, in Bradford, in Yorkshire, as the city pathologist. He, he was quite an eminent um, uh, doctor in, uh, in Austria prior to that. And they were my family were all part of Viennese society. My, my dad happened to be working in Prague when I was born, and should, purely by chance, he was working for a glass company. He was on the admin side of things, but, um, but, but when I eventually became interested in glass, he was, he was quite tickled. So your first experience was with textiles, right? Yeah, uh, yes. Leaving school, I, um, I, I was offered a job uh, ostensibly as a managerial tra- trainee and maybe with the idea that eventually I would marry the dos- boss's daughter and, and take over the company. Um, he was a very distant relative and he'd s- spotted me, as it were, headhunted, talked to my parents and uh, he, he himself didn't have a... He, he didn't have a son who would take over the business and perhaps he saw me as a potential... It was a, it was a, it was the rag trade. We were ba- based in Batley near Dewsbury, a heavy woolen mm. industry. It was mm. called. It was a very dirty, a filthy um, business in a sense. You know, uh, we were dealing with um, reclaimed fibres, in inverted commas. Mm. But uh, it was it was pretty dirty material and very dusty. I'm quite sure if I stayed, I'd been dead long ago. So how did you move from that into clay? When did this interest uh, in clay happen? Yes, I. Um, so I, 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 my work at um, at this company was interrupted by my nas- by national service, and I did a couple of years in the RAF. And during that time, I I became more or became interested in art, more interested. I mean, I'd grown up. Uh, uh, I don't, you can't say a childhood friend, but somebody I'd known quite well, even gone on holiday with as a young man, was David Hockney. And I, you know, I, I, I was interested, very interested in, in, the, um, in the art scene around Bradford and so on. But um, and my 
grandfather used to take me to the Halle Orchestra, you know. Mm. So there was a, a, a degree of culture around. And um, so when I came, I came back, uh, I came back after doing national service. I, quite unusually, my boss had paid me some sort of retainer, not very much money, but something anyway, uh, while I was doing my national service. And uh, so I felt obligated to go back. But I, my interests had changed to some extent, and I'd been very, quite active in the Zionist youth movement. And uh, While you are in the RAF? While I was in the RAF. Mm. Uh, I, I, I'd um, been stationed down in Southampton, and it wasn't a million miles from London, so I could come up and be participating in group activities. And in London was a... A major center for this for that kind of thing and uh, I was invited to take part in a, um, a year's course for youth leaders and uh, so I went to Israel for a year and that was wonderful it was a great year um, and the the person who taught taught handicrafts the, he was a, quite an established artist took me under his wing for some reason and I, I became very excited about about following about art uh, so much so that I used to go out and give English lessons to pay for me to do drawing classes at the Bezalel School of Art the main school of art in in Israel which happened to be based in Jerusalem uh, where we were for a period and uh, and when I came back I, I decided I Alongside my youth activities, again, it was a commitment that I'd made, you know, following, following this year's training. Uh, alongside that, I went to art college. I went to Bradford College of Art. And, um, and that was a very enjoyable experience. Why clay? What was it about clay that you enjoyed? So, I, so, so initially, I, you know, I did a general course, as it were, what, what would foundation today be called? Yeah. It was it was a bit it was pre foundation, mm. but you did a you know you did a bit of everything, and I gravitated from two D from painting and printmaking to to three uh, D more. I was became more interested in three D. I enjoyed the sculpture classes. I and and particularly ceramics pottery. Mm. I seemed to um, I was drawn towards clay mm. to. To working three dimensionally, I perhaps it was something to do with the the speed of the process. Um, I, I I I tend to enjoy. I, well, having said that, now I'm jumping forward about fifty or sixty well, or seventy fine. years. Uh, <laughs> no, now I tend to try to use the glass in quite painterly ways. Mm. But but at that time, I, I was very drawn towards three-dimensional work. I mean, you ended up going to the Central School of Art and Design, as it was known then, Central St. Martins, as it's known now, uh, where you kind of rubbed up against the likes of Ian Old, Ruth Dickinson, Gordon Baldwin. Um, what was that like? Oh, that was fantastic. Um, y- yes, I went to the Central to specialise in ceramics, clay, pottery, and... Uh, it was uh, those were golden years in a way at the central. So the two, there were two or three main ceramics departments in the country at that time, and the central was one of them. For uh, 
our head of the department was a man called Gilbert Harding Green, and he'd been a, an acolyte of Dora Billington. So these are pioneers of, of the studio pottery movement. Uh, the Royal College was another um, important department, but, but that was more, how can I put it, that was more, um, it was more interested in the industry. It was training people for industry, rather. And then there was Camberwell. And and Camberwell and the Central vied with one another at that time. And was your notion at that point to become a studio potter? Was that what you wanted to do? Yes, it was. Mm. Yes, I, I, I clay is a great medium. I love it still. I mean, I you know, I, the idea of getting your hands into clay. There's nothing better in many ways. Uh, glass has some additional um, attributes and. Uh, it's so the thing about glass is that it's so immediate by comparison you know clay making pots wonderful activity but it can take forever in the, you know you you make your thing you dry it you fire it you bisque fire it then you maybe glaze it or continue and then you fire it again and ah oh, it can all take months but but you know, some some potters only have one firing a year. You know, or even or two or three, or you know, or once a month. But, but the way we work, it's it's almost like you were having a firing each each day, and and that is so exciting. I mean, the whole the most exciting bit of the whole process is is getting the 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 piece out of the kiln or out of the annealing oven, and and seeing what you've ended up with. So it's speed that's important in other well, words. Because potters often talk yes. about the kind of, it's this notion of having the fingers in the material and obviously hot glass, you're yeah. definitely not doing that. No, you're not actually touching it, but you're getting pretty close. Mm. Yes, you're slight once removed because you're using tools or a paper pad between you and the hot glass. Uh, no, it is absolutely about getting your fingers in the clay. I had tried a whole lot of processes, you know, earthenware, stoneware, porcelain, and I'd as it were, graduated to raku, which is uh, a technique where you take the hot pot out of a small kiln and you, you stick it into sawdust and smoke it. So I was working quicker and quicker with, with, the, with the clay. And uh, certainly towards the end of working with clay, I was, I was throwing with the wheel going faster than I could control in an effort to see what would what the clay itself would do rather than me controlling the form to the nth degree and that um that was a quality i discovered in the glass that the the glass it's the glass contributes to what you're doing mm. you know it's not a i mean there are glass makers who want to control it to the nth degree they have a form drawn out on paper and they want and they measure it and and they may make sets of goblets, say, and everyone's got to be perfect and they've all got to match. If I were making a set, set of goblets, I would want them all to be different so that people around the table argue about which is the nicest and which one they'd like to have, you know, or which one they'd like to be using, or they pass them around so you get a feel for... Can, yeah. can, can we talk about the transition then from, from one material to the other, from clay to glass? How and where did that happen? Yes, uh, well, so to, yes, I, I can talk about that. I was I was slightly on the on the on thinking about the tactile qualities of 
clay. Well, all right, we, we, can, uh, we, no, can, no, we and, can get into uh, that. <laughs> and certainly in the early days, and even now, because I etch quite a lot of the right. glass, I, I've, I've, I'm not only interested in the visual qualities, I, I, I'm the tactile qualities, the textures are incredibly important to me. And I think that is a that does come from having worked with clay. Mm. I, I was always... I suppose I was all, always more interested in matte glazes or or rough textures with oxides rubbed in than I was in very flashy, shiny glazes. Um, but the tra- to go back to your question about the transition, yes. um, I was teaching ceramics at the University of Iowa in the mid-60s and um, the... the uh, head of department, as it were, had gone on sabbatical and I was sharing responsibility for the department with someone else. Uh, but du- and during that time, one of, the, one of the students of Harvey Littleton, who's generally acknowledged as the father of contemporary glass or of studio glass, uh, came to our campus and, um, and set up a summer school. I mean, I was only in Iowa for 12 months, but the last couple of months of that was a summer school. And I signed up as a student, having done my... Yeah, I was still teaching ceramics, but, you know, I was getting towards the end of that period, and I signed up as a student. Well, sadly, I burnt myself badly, rolled hot glass over the back of my hand. It, It really was the very, very early days of studio glass. So glass... Glass as a medium has, has got thousand, couple, few thousand year history. But um, it was generally it was an activity that went on behind closed doors. Uh, secrets passed from family to family or from father to son. Um, and people like me wouldn't have had access or purely as one small element of a process in a factory maybe but as an artist one wouldn't have had access to the technology we wouldn't have known so so the studio glass movement has been about has really been in the early years particularly about rediscovering or reinventing the techniques that uh, that glassmakers have used over over centuries and were, were you immediately smitten i mean it sounds like you had quite a nasty accident to begin uh, with did this not put you off I thought it had, yes. I, I mean, I thought well, it was a bad burn, mm. and I thought, um, I thought, well, that's that. You know, <laughs> I've done that, been there, done that. Uh, but it's, it, you know, you get hooked, and I was hooked. Um, so when I after I left Iowa, I went to California. Mm. I taught in California. I'm, I, in the meantime, Te- teaching clay, still. teaching clay, right? Te- teaching ceramics. Uh, Sacramento State College, which became Sacramento University, and then later at the University of California, Davis. Really, really interesting teaching jobs, and California was the place to be in ceramics at that time. I, 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 I you know, I was friendly. I'm not nameless dropping, but I was friendly with Peter Volkus and Robert Arneson. In fact, I, I replaced Bob Arneson at Davis when he went on sabbatical. And, and a host of other top ceramists. Some of them were even my students, although David Gilhooly, uh, people that had fantastic 
were doing fantastic work and showing in galleries that I couldn't even get into. Just happened that because I was there at Davis, they, and they were my graduate students, you know. So I was rubbing shoulders with a lot of good people. Mm. And in fact, I, I did make some pretty, pretty good work at, at that time. So the great thing about working in the States then was that um, I had, I, you know, I had my teaching post, but I also was given a student, a studio, and, and, and even some funding to, to make my own work. A bit like, you know, if you're an academic, you're, you're encouraged to um, publish, publish you know, do research and publish. Well, that was my research, to get on and do things. And, and anyway, there was such a, an extraordinary atmosphere at that time. You know, every, there were so many exciting artists working in clay. And, um, you know, I'd only just got the glass bug. I mean, that was, that was sort of buried, really. Um, but you came back in 68 to the UK. I came back in the 68, and that was the Wilson era. And yeah. it was a really tough time. You know, it was such a shock to the system. As I said, I'd been fated almost in the States. I'd had important shows uh, at the Art Institute of Chicago with Viola Frey in, um, in, in San Francisco with Mel Ramos, who was quite a well-known pop artist of the time. Uh, David Hockney was around. I'd known him as, as uh, when I was growing up. Uh, I met Eduardo Palozzi in uh, California. There was a lot of toing and froing, and and you know Warhol was busy mm. where he was, and I'd even been to New York and been to his place. So and, when you came back to the UK, yeah, different scene, so, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Like coming down from I look. I don't take drugs, never have, but I imagine like coming down from a high, you know, it was just tough. Mm. And uh, I did get, I did get a, I did a lot of teaching and it was all part-time in different places. Uh, And one of, one of the places was Stoke-on-Trent. So I'd commute up there, stay overnight, do a couple of days and come back to London. I was London-based. And, and during that time, I uh, went on a trip uh, to Scotland and discovered that a pottery that I'd done work experience in as a student in Mora, a place called Mora near Maleg, overlooking the Isle of Skye, I discovered that was empty and going derelict. Uh, I never did stop it going derelict, but I, I, I ran a summer school there. I'd, I'd been to Haystack and I, I knew what, American summer schools were a little bit like. So I ran one. Uh, I think I, I can't remember whether I did one or two years, but it was so exhausting. I mean, it was, people would come and stay and we'd work 24 hours a day. I mean, they wanted, you know, blood out of a stone, really, which was fair enough. I mean, you know, they'd paid to come and they wanted to get the most out of it. But anyway, as part of that, I, I did a weekend, an introduction to glass. So I built a small glass studio at Mora alongside, in, in the pottery. I created a space to make glass. And that rekindled my excitement and my interest. And the response from the students was so fantastic that, um, 
you know, I then began to search for somewhere to make glass. And I, I suppose I dabbled around a bit at the Royal College. I, I became friendly with Sam Herman, who'd brought the small furnace technology that constituted Studio Glass to, to, to England, first to Edinburgh and then to the Royal College. So I, as glass goes, I'm, I'm more or less self-taught. I've never had formal training, but it's been learning on the job, really. So the glass is beginning to take over. What prompts you to start London glass blowing? Um, yes, I, I, as part of that, uh, process of getting involved in things in, in London. I, uh, um, I joined, well, I, uh, I became one of the people, uh, who was originally involved with the glass house. Um, in Covent Garden. In Covent Garden, yes. Right. It was, it was, the concept was to provide a facility for, I mean, Sam came up with the idea, Sam Herman persuaded um, Graham Hughes at the British Glass Centre to set up a studio adjacent to it in, um, as, as you said, in, in uh, Neil Street in Covent Garden. And it was beautifully set up. Uh, an interior designer created these wonderful backlit panels to display the glass. And um, I, ju- I helped Sam build the original furnace, but... Um, but I, 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 I suppose I wasn't um, ever a full-time member, but I began to hanker f- for my own studio. And um, I, I just hunted around till I found one. Michael Murray was very active in the uh, early, mid-70s, creating m- multiple studios, uh, studios for young craftsmen to work. He himself was a silversmith, and um, and that was about the time when the Crafts Council was starting it to uh, operate. Um, again, an exciting time to be around. So I and I'd been looking for quite a long time, and then one of Michael's projects was a, a thing called Rotherhithe Workshops, and it was a, a bunch um, of old warehouses on the river. And one of them was a towage works, a single-story towage works. And the thing that one of the things that had bothered me about the glass house in Covent Garden was that people lived above it, and I, I was a bit paranoid about, you know, God forbid there'd be a fire or something, and you know, it would all go up in smoke. So I found a single-story building with a tin roof, uh, no one living above. That seemed ideal as a studio. It looked out over the Thames, had a little balcony where we used to go and cool off. Um, and I started. And again, again, it was the blind leading the blind. I, I, I had a friend who, um, whom I'd met at National Natural Childbirth Trust. Um, we'd, we'd laid on the ground and huffed and puffed together, you know, while we, as part of the process. <laughs> and, uh, I, I just said to him, would you like to come and work with me up at Mora and see if we can make some glass? And uh, he, he did. You know, he made the 600-mile journey and we worked there for uh, a few weeks together. And when I found, when I found the Rotherhithe studio, I, I asked him to come and help me, be, be my assistant, if you like, or help me get things going. And soon after that, 
other people wanted to join us. Norman Stuart Clark came from Nazing Glass, uh, Sidney Langley, who uh, is still, both of whom are still working in glass. Sidney uh, Langley is down in Devon. She um, had a, a few boutiques with uh, vintage clothing and uh, she came and did one of my classes and almost overnight gave up the boutiques and came to be our assistant, apprentice. So this was 1976? We're talking 1970. Well, 1976, I, I actually started the studio and I had my first major show that year because there was a very important uh, conference at the Royal College of Art called uh, International Hot Glass and people came from all over the world. And it was a brilliant event. Uh, and I had was lucky enough to have an exhibition. I mean, I managed to organise to have an exhibition scheduled for that time at the Camden Art Institute. And people came to see it and were very complimentary. And I, so I was working... So that was late 1976. But um, I suppose, you know, really during 77, 78 was when we... Began to take off. What was the glass market like at that time? Oh, non-existent. Mm. Absolutely not. Uh, well, there was the glass house, and uh, most of the craft galleries, the decent craft galleries that existed, were only really interested in ceramics um, po- and possibly jewellery. I, I suppose the the kind of uh, the kind of re- response you'd get as you were hawking your wares was, um, oh, you need special lighting. You know, like the backlighting at the glass house. You need special lighting for glass, to, to display glass. Um, and we don't have it, and our customers don't have it, so f- no thanks. And how has that changed now? However, has it changed no, now? How, sorry, however, uh, my solution to that was that I looked for a type of glass that didn't need special lighting, uh, and I came up with the idea that um, iridizing was the answer, which was producing work slightly in the vein of Tiffany. And that was its downfall. I mean, that was the problem with iridizing. It had that Art Nouveau connotation or connection. Mm. Uh, so it wasn't cutting edge in any way. But but we made, London Glassblowing made its name on the back of it because it's, it was so a so beautiful visually and b so tactile. It was so, so you know the, the iridized work has such a beautiful surface and it doesn't finger mark you know the way normal glass does shiny glass does. So it took me a long long time to graduate to making so called normal glass shiny shiny glass. I I went through different periods of of, as I said earlier, of uh, etching, so iridizing, then etching everything, and then eventually arrived at, you know, thick, heavy, glossy glass. But there's a market now. I mean, the market has changed. And how has it changed? The market has changed, but I, we're still, I think it's been quite slow in the UK. Uh, most collectors, and there aren't, that many of them are well there are a lot of collectors for antiques you know for antique glass they uh, a great many and there are several societies uh, whose members are avidly interested so it's been a, a quite a long uphill struggle to persuade the public to become interested in contemporary glass 
you know, Murano is another issue because, you know, we used to get, we have over the years had masses of customers walk in and, ah, Murano, you know, and our hearts sink, you know, and, and more latterly. A couple why, of why, years. why would your heart sink? Well, you know, no, this, A, this is better. No, I'm kidding. Uh, but no, you know, it's just a superficial comparison. You know, here's, we're trying to do what we do. And of course, it's the same material and there are connections. And anyway, techniques are pretty much the same in many ways. You know, they're all the, but we as artists working here and there, say 10 of us working maker, makers, um, we're all striving to find our, separate directions and of course there's lots of overlap and we influence one another and help one another and crit one crit, you know critique one another can, can we talk a bit yeah, about sure. the um the the setup of london glass Brewing yeah, and, and how that developed uh, because it's quite unique isn't it? you have 10 makers um well directly below us as we speak now um how did that setup start and what's the thinking behind it it was always my firm intention that whoever worked with me would make their own glass. They weren't, they didn't simply work for me. They worked alongside me or with me, helped me with my work where, where it was required. And in the early days, I was making a lot of it myself and people were assisting me. More latterly, I'm approaching 82, uh, and we're working bigger and thicker and heavier. Uh, I have ha- a lot of help. You know, I don't necessarily ha- handle the blowing iron myself, but it's very much my work, and it wouldn't happen without me. So the the principle is that the guys help me with my whoever's working. I I say guys, but it, not necessarily men. Um, um, they help me with my work, and I facilitate by providing this, the the glass studio uh in many cases i pay them as well but but they help me with my work in order to gain furnace time to do their own work or or, or the other facilities we have like cold working facilities and you've been on this site in bermondsey street for well nearly a decade now yes yes we're we're about to celebrate our 10th year how important is it to be making in what is fundamentally the heart of london oh it's uh, yes you know many times i've well, many times people have said, why don't you move out? Because, you know, you, it would be so much cheaper or less expensive to, to work outside London. But this is where the, the market, such as it is, this is where it is for the ma- most part. Uh, we're established here. People know us. Um, you know, we've, we've got pretty large clientele. They, Sadly, a lot of them are getting older like I am or they're running out of space. But, you know, we are working quite hard to attract a, a new audience. It's, it's, it's really important to be in, in town. For me, Most I think we're the only major studio left in London. There were several at one time, but they've gradually had to move out. Um, or we're the only one that really has a, a degree of public access anyway. Let's put it that way. We have a gallery and, uh, and, and the public are encouraged to come and watch the process. And do you have a sense of the future, not only for London glassblowing, but for the studio glass movement itself in this country? Um, 
I'd like to say the the class movement here was burgeoning, and I have said that in the past. And I, I you know, I do want to be positive about it. it things, I think things are going in the right direction, but it is slow and it is tough. It is a struggle, and it, it's a lot has it has a lot to do with uh, things going on out, uh, you know, beyond that, beyond the studio, as it were, you know. Um, Various recessions, Brexit, call it what you will. I, I, you know, who knows what influences the public, you know, when they think, you know, we, we get untold numbers of people who tell us how wonderful the work is, you know, whose, their jaws drop when they walk in, you know, it's like in Aladdin's cave, it's full of treasures. So we have become something of a destination, but we also attract quite, I mean, it's become, Bermondsey Street has developed so much in those 10 years. It's a real foodie haunt. You know, we've got such good restaurants and uh, White Cube is here, the biggest commercial gallery yeah. in Europe, uh, fashion and textile museum across the road. And we get a lot of co- uh, people coming from the fashion and textile museum and they are our target audience, in fact. So you're coming up to 82. Yes. And the plan is to continue making... The plan is to continue making. Yes, I don't ever relish retiring. I, I suppose I'd like to withdraw, but that isn't easy uh, at this stage. Uh, maybe, maybe, you know, the problem is that staff come and go. Um, may, that's not true in the, on the making side so much. I mean, most, uh, Lane Rowe, one of the best blowers, uh, makers in the country, has been with me for over 20 years. Louis Thompson has been here over, well over 10 years. Bruce Marx is the same. I'm trying to think. Uh, Tim Rawlinson has been here seven years. The, people stay. You know, the working conditions are good. Uh, maybe I'm a bit soft. And, you know, anyway, they end up, they, they, they stay sometimes Anthony Scala's another one. He's been, he first came when he was an eight-year-old boy and uh, was so entranced that he, eventually we, you know, he joined us. Um, we do have a very good team. Peter Layton, I've taken up far too much of your time. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for coming.